Exodus chapter 16 is this well-known story, at least much of it is well-known, of God providing his children uh, quail and manna in the wilderness. It wasn't that long ago that God has led them out of the land of Egypt through the Red Sea, destroyed the Egyptian army inside of the Red Sea, and then the children of Israel begin to make their way through the wilderness, guided by Moses and guided by God. And one of the first things we noticed as all of this got started is that it does not take long for the people of God to begin to complain. God has freed them from slavery. But now this freedom means they're gonna have to wander through the wilderness. They're gonna have to learn some things about God. They're gonna have to grow in their trust and their faith in God. But it's not just wandering for the sake of wandering. It is God teaching them and shaping them and turning them into his people. Part of what's interesting about this passage is that their most recent complaint, you may recall from the previous passage, They griped to Moses. They said, you know, back when we were slaves in Egypt, we almost had too much meat to eat. We had almost too much bread to eat. They're griping, they're worried that now they're gonna die in the wilderness. So what does God give them? He gives them quail from heaven and he gives them bread from heaven as well. So God is teaching, God is leading, and we are intended to learn certain things about God. The story of the manna and the quail is a wonderful and memorable story of God's provision for his people, but it is also an incredible moment of what we would call spiritual formation or discipleship, growing up in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Their minds and their souls have been deformed by Egypt, deformed by slavery and oppression and living inside of this pagan land surrounded by pagan worship. So one of the things that God takes time to do is to reform his people into his image. People who look more like him, think more like him, have priorities that God gives them, that they would carry his image into the rest of the world. One of the original questions we asked when we started the book of Exodus, I think comes back to us again here in this passage. What do the people of God do when the culture around them changes radically? That was the first seven or eight verses of Exodus chapter one. Then a Pharaoh arose that did not know Joseph, and the people of God go from being favored people to slaves, and then God frees them and begins to shape them. So what happens to the people of God when the culture around them radically changes? Well, one of the things that we watch happen in this passage is that God does what it takes to form them into his image instead of the image of the world and the culture around them. He's taking them out of Egypt, and as we keep on putting it, he's taking Egypt out of them now as they wander through the wilderness. So here's what we're gonna watch in this passage of scripture this morning. First of all, and this is, um, this is maybe the, the clearest thing at the surface of this passage, that God provides and his people work. God says, watch, I'm going to rain bread from the sky. But he doesn't rain it from the sky straight into their mouths. All they have to do is walk out when they're hungry, open their mouths, and God rains bread from heaven. That's not how it works. 
He rains it down and first thing in the morning, they have to go out and they have to gather it up. There are rules about how they gather it up and they can't keep it overnight. And if they wait too long to do the work, the sun gets too hot and the bread in the wilderness evaporates away. God provides, but his people are going to work to collect and to prepare to eat it. Something else that happens in this passage that will probably take most of us by surprise. God establishes the Sabbath in the story of the quail and the manna. So before we get to the Ten Commandments, and many of us, if we're thinking ahead in this passage, we're thinking it's not that long before we get to Mount Sinai. They arrive there in Exodus chapter 19. And then we hit the Ten Commandments. That's the beginning of Exodus chapter 20. And inside of those Ten Commandments, we get this one about observing the Sabbath day and keeping it holy. Well, before we get there, in the context of the bread and the quail and their hunger and their griping, in God's formation of their lives, God establishes the Sabbath. It turns out the Sabbath is a gift, a unique gift given to God's children that is based on his character and his activity. The way God has done things, he now gives it to his children. And so the Sabbath, even in this passage, becomes a rhythm. It becomes a pattern dictated by God of work and rest and worship. I think we're going to enjoy talking about the Sabbath in a couple of passages early in Exodus. And then finally, like I think we've realized that everything does in this story of Exodus, all of it leads us to Jesus. God provides their daily bread. He provides our daily bread. But it turns out, as Moses reflects on this moment, 40 years from now, Moses thinks, you know, we do not live on just bread alone, but God did this to us to teach us that we, le- we live from every word that comes from the mouth of God. We are both bodies and souls that need the right daily nourishment. All of this is going to lead us to Jesus. It's beautiful in its way. So in the book of Exodus, chapter 16, we'll start reading in verse 13. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. And whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till morning. But they did what the people of God normally do. They did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning. And it bred worms and stank. 
And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. The passage begins by saying, well, in the evening, God sends quail and the people of God have meat to eat. And early in the morning before it gets hot, God has literally rained bread down from heaven. The people now have to figure out what this is and how it works. Two verses earlier, if you go back and read a couple of other verses, God told Moses that he had heard the grumbling of his people and that they would begin to eat of his miraculous provision that very night. And so God's design in this miracle, if you go to the end of verse 12, just before where we started reading, God says, say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. This is God's design in these miraculous provisions. And it's not just the miraculous provisions, it's the way it works. There's rules, there's a pattern to it. The sixth and seventh day change in the next passage of scripture. All of this is given to the people of God so that God says, so that they will know that I am the Lord their God. So the quail come at night, they know what that is. They've eaten quail before, they know how to do that. They wake up in the morning and there's the stuff on the ground that they've never seen before. So I love the way the text puts it. Reading through the Old Testament is a kick in a lot of ways. They, they, they look around and they see the stuff on the ground and they're all saying to each other, what on earth is this? Now the two Hebrew words that comprise that question, what is it, when you put those two words together become the word manna. So that's where the word manna comes from are the people of God going, I don't know what this is. The word manna literally means, what is it? It's this surprise thing, this provision, this miracle of God for his people. And it begins to come with instructions. One omer per person, per the number of people inside of your tent. That's what you get to gather. So one omer for for each of the individuals that are inside of your tent. It's roughly two quarts or so, as some people have guessed maybe what an omer would have looked like. They discover as well that no matter how much or how little they are able to gather in the morning, this is what it measures out to be, just enough for them to have during the day. They have to gather it daily, They cannot leave it overnight and save it for the next day. They can't wait until later in the day to pick it up because the sun is going to rise and it's gonna burn it off the ground, so you have to do it first thing in the morning. They're going to be tempted to hoard it and take care of themselves. Now, again, you know, we read these sorts of moments where it says, but the people of God paid absolutely no attention to what Moses told them to do, and they saved it overnight anyway, and we think, well, those crazy old Israelites. Remember, we are in the place of the people of God going through the wilderness. They're tempted to say, well, this may not show up tomorrow morning. God may not actually take care of us again tomorrow morning, so I've got an idea. Let's gather more, and let's not make it all today, and just in case, at least we'll have breakfast in the morning. Tempted to take care of ourselves under our own energies, intelligence, steam, schemes, however you want to put it. Moses gets angry with them. 
They keep it overnight and it won't even stay until the morning. It's bread worms. We got to get this thing out of here. So it comes with this structure. It comes with this pattern of here's what you're going to do now every day. And as the text is going to tell us, for 40 years. This creates provision, miraculous provision, but a pattern of obedience as well. So here's the beginning of the story of the quail and the manna and the way that God wants to give it to his people. And the text continues because there's more that God wants to show them. Exodus chapter 16, verse 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over lay aside to keep it till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them and it did not stink and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. So we've got this pattern of every morning, but then it changes. On day six, Moses says, yes, gather twice as much. Prepare it, bake it, boil it, save the next day's food for the morning, and it's going to be just fine. God's going to take care of you for the seventh day, and he's going to do it on the sixth day. You'll gather up, you're going to rest on the seventh, and you're still going to eat, and you're still going to be just fine. So God establishes the pattern of the Sabbath in the story of the manna and the quail. So this is fascinating, and I want to talk about the Sabbath for a little while this morning. We're going to get a chance to do this again when it actually shows up inside of the Ten Commandments. But this entire story, remember, God is saying, we're doing this, people, so that you will begin to know that I am the Lord your God. Well, what does that mean? How does that then change my life? Does it change the habits and patterns of my lives? My life, does it change the way I worship? Does it change the way I think? Does it change the way I work? So one of the first lessons God gives them is, well, as a matter of fact, it does. I'm giving you a day of rest. The Sabbath is fascinating. God institutes the Sabbath as a day of rest and as a day that belongs to the Lord. It's going to be so important for us in making sense of what the Sabbath means, how it's set up, why it's set up, how we might still observe the Sabbath. He sets it up as a day of rest and as a day that belongs to the Lord. So the Sabbath is a unique gift given to God 
uh, given by God to his people based on who he is and how he has done things. So let's think about this for a moment or two. You and I are accustomed to some version of a seven-day pattern. We don't think much about it. We just know what Monday means. We know what Friday means. We know what Sunday means. We know what Monday morning. We we are used to this pattern. Where does this pattern come from? Why is it set up the way that it is? Well, we begin to see it as we read a passage of Scripture like this, but it's rooted even further back in the creation order itself as God works for seven, six days and rests on the seventh. When he does this with his people, he causes them to work for six days and then he gives them rest on the seventh. Now, what is so world-changing about what we just read is that the people of Israel had been slaves in Egypt for generations without a single day off. The Egyptians don't work in seven-day patterns. They don't get excited for TGIF. You know, Friday afternoon early, I'm leaving, and we're going fishing in the Nile for the rest of the weekend. That's not the pattern when you're a slave. You work every day, no rest, no break, no rhythm, no pattern. So God says, I'm going to create a pattern for you. You're going to work early in the morning. You're going to gather your food because I'm going to give it to you. It's going to change a little bit on the sixth day because on the seventh, he says, just stay in your tent. It's a day of rest. Don't work. Friends, we need to realize this about the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a gift. It's literally a gift from God to his people. So the Sabbath makes its way through the rest of the Old Testament in fascinating ways. And by the time we get to the life of Jesus Christ, we have these religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, who are attempting to obey the letter of the law. And even more than that, when you observe the Sabbath, you can only walk so many steps, do so many things. There are all these rules that have been set up around the Sabbath. And for the people of God, the Sabbath becomes a burden. It becomes a different kind of labor. It becomes a certain kind of legalistic expectation upon the people of God. So here comes this crazy guy, Jesus, with his disciples doing things on the Sabbath you're not supposed to do. So they're griping and they're complaining with them. Why do your disciples do this? Why do you do this? In one of those conversations, Jesus says this about the Sabbath in Mark chapter 2, verse 27. And he said to them, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Well, we just read that. God said, I'm giving you the Sabbath. It's not made to create another set of rules and regulations about how the day is supposed to work. It is intended to create a rhythm, a pattern in your life of work and rest and worship. So God gives his people this day, this Sabbath day, a rest from their labor as a gift. It was made for them, Jesus says. It was made for us, not for a set of legalistic patterns. So we learn in all kinds of ways, as a matter of fact, that the Sabbath is a healthy pattern for human beings, for families, for the way we work, the way we don't work, a pattern that is good for us physically, emotionally, spiritually, 
And a lot of what happens to us is we tend to ignore the pattern of the Sabbath in both directions. Workaholism, the sense that I have to work all the time for whatever set of reasons is a breaking of the command of the Sabbath and the gift that God has given. So we walk through this repetitive, obsessive pattern day after day after day after day. What does that life of work look like? Does it look like the people of God in freedom or does it look like the people of God in slavery? Looks like the people of God in slavery. And increasingly, in really interesting ways, we're finding the other problem happening more and more. I'm not going to work at all. I'm going to avoid walking down that path too far. But I think we feel that, we see that, we know that it is actually showing up statistically in really troublesome ways in unemployment statistics, other economic statistics. The number especially of young men who have just quit working is maybe now four out of 10. Working age men who have just quit working. That changes things. And that vision of life is disobedient, ironically, to the gift of Sabbath and the way God institutes it and the way God has built us. So let's see this about the Sabbath as well. The Sabbath sanctifies both work and rest. So God gives his people this pattern, both work and rest are from God and are necessary for our souls. I see often from your average village atheist online, they'll say things like, work is the result of the fall. It's not. Work is not the result of the fall. Toil is a result of the fall. God, in his perfect relationship with Adam and Eve, put them in the garden to work it and keep it and grow it and tend to it. God literally built us to do these kinds of things. But rest, as we saw, is not given to slaves. So God gives rest to his children. And in fact, in this passage, because it's the first lesson of its kind, his children are not used to this kind of pattern, he forces it. I'm not even gonna give you food on the seventh day. You're gonna go out, there's gonna be no quail, there's gonna be no bread. I'm gonna force you into the Sabbath pattern here in the wilderness. This is really important. I think an important way of thinking about why the Sabbath works the way that it does, especially with what we just read here. Resting on the seventh day teaches us to trust in God. God will feed us on the seventh day. The people of Israel are learning this. We don't have to go take care of it. He will provide. He will, we can rest and God will take care of us. This is what work is, at least in one way. Work is provision for ourselves and our families and those we love and those around us. So we work to provide for. And God says, I want you to rest so that you learn that I am the one who is providing for you. So can we rest from our work, trusting that God is still going to take care of us? Can we trust that God is still in control if we take our hand off of the plow or the keyboard for just a day? Can God still take care of us and feed us 
He's forcing his people into this pattern. The first command for the Sabbath is a pattern of work and rest in the context of God literally providing for their daily needs. I will take care of you. And then this is another important part about the Sabbath. And I think this is something that when we tend to think about the Sabbath, we miss this piece. But it is a universal teaching every time the Sabbath shows up in the Old Testament. And I'm, I mean that literally. Every time the Sabbath shows up in the Old Testament, it shows up as this. The Sabbath is a day that is set apart for the Lord. So this is the first command of Sabbath. This is a day of rest. And it's a day of Sabbath unto the Lord. So the Sabbath does not just become a day of vegetation, a day of leisure. It becomes a day of rest from normal work, and it becomes a day of worship to God. Let that sink in for a moment. <laughs> it becomes a day intended, established by God, for his people to gather and worship him. 25 times in the Old Testament, the Sabbath is called a holy day. Not just because of the gift of rest that God gives his people, but the gift of corporate worship that God's people give him on the Sabbath day. So God gives a day of rest and we return the attention by setting aside time to worship. We won't forget, right? We remember and we worship God, thanking him on the Sabbath day. This is God's intention. The rest itself is patterned after God's labor. Exodus chapter 16, verse 30, it uses this phrase that should ring a couple of bells in some of our heads. Exodus 16, verse 30, so the people rested on the seventh day. Takes us all the way back to creation. Genesis chapter two, verse two. And on the Sabbath day, excuse me, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So I'm giving you this day, and the text just says, and the people rested on the seventh day. So what question do American Christians have every single time they read about or talk about or are learning about the Sabbath? They think, well, does it still apply to us today? How can this still apply to us today? We will still get to more of the Sabbath conversation when God establishes it again inside of the Ten Commandments. But in asking this question, does the Sabbath still apply to us today, ask yourself another question. What of what we have already talked about does not apply to us? It's based on the character and nature of God. It is a gift that he gives his people. It is an act of trust that God asks his people to engage in. Nothing that we have said no longer applies. Everything we've described about the Sabbath belongs to God's people still today. All of it is grounded in the work of God, in the gift of God, and the worship of God. What we read in the New Testament is Christ warning us against legalism, misusing the Sabbath, even using it to abuse other people about the Sabbath. 
But that still does not mean that the Sabbath no longer applies because God has given us something based on his character and the gift that he wants to give his children so that we might know that he is the Lord, our God. Well, the text continues as Moses and the people begin to sort of put together the pieces of this puzzle, what it means and what they're going to do with it. Exodus chapter 16, beginning in verse 31. Now the house of Israel called its name, the name of the stuff that they've been eating, manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. We're going to remember what God has done. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Omer is the 10th part of an ephah, just in case you were confused about how much an Omer was. (laughs) And you can actually read the story of the ceasing of the quail and the manna as you go into the first five chapters of the book of Joshua. They're now making their way into the promised land. God has granted it to them, and now they're going to start working their way through, and the manna stops. So sure enough, that little, uh, those loose ends tie themselves up very nicely there early in the book of Joshua. But Moses says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a jar of it, that same jar that we have been collecting for so very long now. We're going to place it before the presence of the Lord, and we're going to remember what God has done for us. And it's gonna be with us generation after generation. As a matter of fact, later in the book of Exodus, God gives Moses the description of the tabernacle and all the furniture that's gonna be in the tabernacle. And the most important piece of furniture is that Ark of the Covenant that sits at the center in the Holy of Holies. And it's a box upon which the presence of God sits. And inside of that box, early on, there's actually a jar of manna. And it's the book of Hebrews that tells us that story. Hebrews chapter nine, verse four. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna. And Aaron's staff that budded, these other stories that happened in the book of Numbers as well, and the tablets of the covenant, the 10 commandments that God gives in chapter 20. So they've kept these things to remind them of who their God is and learn that he is the Lord, their God. These lessons of God's provision and the obedience of his people continues to shape the story of God's people generation after generation. So we make our way through time and we get to the book of Deuteronomy and Deuteronomy is is the retelling of the law. Moses, just before he dies, gives essentially his last sermon to the nation of Israel. And inside of that, he recalls the story of the manna. And after all of this time, he's reflecting on it. He's describing to them, this is why God did it. This is what God was doing with his people. So I want to read that story because it contains language we need to hear as the people of God. Deuteronomy chapter 8, the first three verses go like this. 
the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply. This covenantal language is so familiar from Exodus 20 on. That you may be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commands or not. Listen to this. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. This was brand new stuff. That he might make you know that a man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He did this to you to humble you and teach you that he is the Lord, your God. He is the source of your provision. It is by his word that the quails show up. It is by his word that the manna shows up. You just gather what God has given. And in fact, you gather enough of what God has given so that you can take this rest that you never had before. So even Moses, thinking about the miracle of the manna and the quail, his reaction is, God is not teaching us about the bread. He's teaching us about the very word of God. You must sustain yourself daily with the word of God. You must obey what God has given you on a regular daily basis to take hold of what he has given you. This is what he's teaching you. So yes, it's ultimately, it's about bread, but it points finally to the word of God and then ultimately to Christ himself. He pulls this entire story into who he is, creates more controversy, bothers more disciples, sends a bunch of disciples away. It is so bothersome to them the way Jesus pulls this story into himself. When he says that I am the bread of life. Listen to part of this story. Again, it is more confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders. And at one point in John chapter 6, the religious leaders are thinking, now this guy is claiming to be something we know that he is not. So we're going to see if he can one-up one of the greatest miracles that we were ever given by Moses. So in John chapter 6, Verses 29 through 31, the conversation goes like this. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, okay, then prove it. That what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Religious leaders are mocking the claims of Christ. They're trying to make sure that nobody who is there in the crowd listening to this will follow him and say, okay, we've got it. Moses fed us for 40 years. What, what can you do for us? So Jesus responds this way further on in John chapter six. Jesus then said to them, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. Even Moses recognizes. It's about the word of God, people. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is what this is all about, Jesus says. It's about the one that God has sent. And it is me, the Son of God. I am the bread of life. You eat of me and of my teachings. You learn who I am and you will never hunger again. You won't have to get up in the morning hungry, but you will feed of me day after day after day. And this is what will satisfy. I am the bread of life. You believe in me and you will drink and you will never be thirsty again. This is me. This is who I am. Jesus pulls all of it into him. Our regular daily habit for the follower of Jesus Christ, must include our interaction with Christ. It must include it. This is the story. This is the intention. This is the gift that we have been given. It must include our own personal acts of worship and the word of God and the attention paid to the presence and the work of Jesus Christ in our lives because God is still at work forming his children into his image. He is still at work within us, in the pieces of us that through our sin and through our connection to the sinful, broken world around us have become deformed. They're no longer like God. They're no longer like his word. We no longer listen to him because we have been broken. We've been made deaf this way. So God is constantly at work reforming us, every one of us, into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. So again, what can the people of God do when the world around them changes so radically? Here's one way of answering that question for you and me right now. We can double down on the habits the enemy wants to destroy. We just do it more. (laughs) We get deeper into it. The word of God, our prayer lives, the activity of the holy day of Sabbath that is a day that's been given to the Lord for us that we gather and worship. These are all habits that the enemy wants to break so that he can deform us. So as things change around us and as pressures change and press in upon us, what do the people of God do? We are careful to do everything that God has told us to do so that we can take hold of what he has given us and we can live in his land. This is what Moses is saying. We now live in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light and life instead of the kingdom of darkness. We so easily believe that the food of this world will satisfy, but we always walk away hungry. Friends, this final thought I want to leave us with, and by final thought, I don't mean we'll be done in three minutes, maybe 30, but it's my final thought, I promise you. 
We are bodies and souls that need nourishment constantly. And whether you know it or not, you feed your soul every day. What you put into your eyes and your ears and your mind and your heart is feeding that soul. It is forming and shaping you. It's turning you into a certain kind of shape. That's what it means to be made in the image of something like a statue being formed in the image of someone. Our souls are being fed, formed constantly. What you put in your body shapes you. A diet of Twinkies, Coke, and cheeseburgers, as magnificent as that sounds, that's going to do something to you physically. The same is true of our souls. What is daily walking into your brain? What is daily making its way through your eyes into your heart? Because it is filling your soul with images and priorities and values and language. Your very vocabulary gets shaped by the way your soul is formed. So God says, every day I need you taking of the bread of life. I need you in the presence of Christ. I need you to give the Holy Spirit access to your life so that you can be deformed away from the way that this broken world works and the way our sin wants to misshape us and be shaped in the image of the bread of life himself, of Jesus Christ. This is the freedom that God is walking his people into. This is the freedom that God is walking us into. Every day, Christ and his word and prayer and every week, we gather with the people of God and we worship. And Jesus says, eat of me, you will never be hungry again. Drink from me, and this is what will satisfy you because nothing else will. Let's pray. 